Welcome to another Simply Bitcoin interview series. This is the second one we did. We have some awesome guests today. We're going to talk a lot of, about a lot of things. First, let's do some introductions. How are you doing, Lawrence? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Very, very excited. It's going to be a great show. And of course, Steven. What's up? Great to be here. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, it's going to be a great show. So, guys, first of all, because a lot of other Bitcoin podcasts, they go straight to the point. But I'm going to I'm going to ask some a little bit of different questions. Right. So first, I'm going to start with Lawrence. Lawrence, when did you get into Bitcoin and what interested you into getting into Bitcoin? Yeah, sure. So uh, in 2013, I bought uh, my first Bitcoin. Not very many of them. I was I was quite fortunate. I was trying to buy I was never in the paper wallet stage, you know, before uh, the exchanges really kind of got going. And I was trying to get an account open at um, uh, Mt. Gox, and I was really lucky. They failed. Like, I was in the process. I had the papers, and I was, I was probably close to wiring them money. So <laughs> I didn't. They failed. Uh, Coinbase came along, and I bought my first coins through Coinbase in 2013. And honestly, I didn't really know what I was buying. I mean, I, I understood the general idea. I'd read the white paper. I thought it was pretty interesting, the notion of private money, but I was very skeptical about the technology and whether or not it was going to, uh, you know, be bulletproof and last. And, you know, I, I kind of came at computers from a, you know, a non-computer guy's point of view, which is, uh, you know, I'd be using my IBM PC and it'd go blue screen on me. So, you know, I, I kind of thought, well, anything that's done on a computer has the potential to fail. So let's not go crazy on buying these things. But I bought some. And, um, you know, because I thought I'd put my foot in the water and I'd learn more about it. So that's, that's when I got started. So what what finally convinced you, right? Like, well, what made it, you take the last leap? Yeah. Well, so it's over time. I mean, I, you know, I'm fully orange pilled now and I believe Bitcoin's going to win and replace gold and all that stuff. But having said that, you know, I, I didn't get there instantly. Right. I mean, and I was buying uh, kind of consistently from 2013 to 2017. I bought right into the big rush in 2017. I paid, you know, 17, 18,000 bucks at Thanksgiving and everyone was talking about it. Of course, and I watched it fall to 10 the next year and 3,500 the year after. I doubled down at 10. I doubled down at 3,500. And I just kept, um, and, I, and then I went to a show, a Bitcoin show, small show, not a lot of people out in uh, Santa Monica or, I mean, um, um, Palo Alto area. And, uh, you know, it, it it always seemed like a small subculture, but it but it struck me as interesting and it made a lot of sense. And uh, and it just, you know, block wars came along. And with every step, I got more and more convinced that, you know, it was real and that the problems were whatever problems existed were solvable. I mean, I went to a conference at MIT, sat next to a core developer um, that gave me a lot of confidence and also kind of shook me up a little bit, too, though, because he said, well, Every now and then I go home, having made a change, and I wonder if I've blown up the whole network. And I was kind of like, <laughs> oh, shit. You know? I mean, and so I always viewed it as a very interesting project, but I just wasn't clear how much, how much capital can I risk in this thing that's still got you know, technical risk in it. And I think even the people in it would say, I mean, I've been to shows and talked to people who are early developers. And they had 10,000 coins they'd mined on their own. And you know, even they say, well, we're not completely sure this thing's going to work. And when it got to a dollar or $2 a coin, a lot of them said, well, I need a car. I'm going to sell my 10,000 coins so I can buy a $20,000 car. 
And, you know, of course, they regret that now. But but none of us knew. Right. We, we couldn't be certain what was going to happen. I mean, I, that's why I give Max Kaiser so much credit for having the vision, believing and just absolutely convinced that it was going to work. Uh, he's been right. You know. Yeah, he's been absolutely right. Uh, Max, Max and Stacy, both of them, absolute legends. They were actually a very big inspiration for us. Uh, the format of the show, you guys do the interview. The format of the show is totally different. Um, and a big inspiration was us for us was the 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 Kaiser Report, the original one. Now right. they, you know, right. now they went right. full Bitcoin uh, show, which is amazing. The Max and Stacy Report. So, Stephen. Same question for you. You came out of nowhere. Um, Corey told me, he's like, this guy is a rising legend. Everyone's going to know him. So, Stephen, where'd you come from? When did you get into Bitcoin? Where were you? Yeah, well, I appreciate I appreciate that. That's high praise coming from Corey. So, thanks for that. I'll try to, try to live up to it. Um, so, I got into Bitcoin... Um, in basically the beginning of 2017. So I was fortunate that I discovered it when it was around a thousand a coin. So my, you know, my conviction was very quickly rewarded. You feel like a genius, right? You're like, oh, wow, okay, this thing. And it just does nothing but go up for a year. Um, but, you know, we all know the other side to that story. So I, I got in then. I didn't buy as much as I should have or I wish I had. Um, and then, you know, obviously, you know, held through the downturn and, and the bear market in the winter. And, um, I came from a bit of a like, like a more of a software, more of a technology background at first. I had like worked, uh, especially later on, uh, managing like a software development agency, more just like traditional stuff. And I got really interested in Bitcoin. And I first kind of understood it from the technology angle. And my first kind of wave of Bitcoin was like, hey, this is a really interesting technology. It's this payment network. But at that point, I didn't understand as much about money as I do today. And it was actually only later on that I came to understand Bitcoin as money. And at that point, it was like a second kind of aha moment where I was like, oh, this isn't just a, this payment network. This isn't just this technology. This is actually a problem. Like society has this problem. And the problem is all of our stores of value are buckets with holes in them. Like they're leaky. They have issues in their ability to store value and you know and obviously for people to own the asset to transfer the asset to do all the various stuff that you know we all know we're all we're all into this the, into bitcoin um so i got you know my my conviction grew over time you know i uh like a lot of people in 2017 you know i did the shit coin shitcoin horseshoe um but then you know 2018 i realized like okay bitcoin is really like the, the right design choice, right? Like I think everything else just compromises on these design choices and introduces just trade-offs and vulnerabilities. I thought Bitcoin is really not just like the right design, but also it's tackling the most substantial problem and the most meaningful problem that is money. Like it really is this thing that we don't usually think about, but it is incredibly important to the functioning of society. So you know, I got got really into it. I worked as a consultant for high net worth investors for years, helping them navigate Bitcoin. Um, and then, you know, I joined up with Swan in uh, 2020 and 2021. And I've run I've run the private client team. So I do uh, high net worth investor services and concierge for Swan. Yeah, Swan Private, pretty awesome. Um, 
I've used the service myself. No, I haven't used the service myself. I, I'm, I'm still holding out. Corey, Corey almost has me. But no, I do recommend Swan Private um, to people that I, I, I want them to have a good experience entering Bitcoin. Um, and I get them on one of the unchained, uh, the, uh, either the unchained or the Casa multi-sig setup. And then, you know, I, I, I recommend Swan Private. I think you guys do. It's more of an OTC type of thing. You know, you have your own personal person. You text them. It's a good experience overall. Anyways, Stephen, at the end of the day, this is simply Bitcoin. This is a pleb show. So we have to address the elephant in the room. There was a miscommunication. Yeah. Let me yeah. pull the tweet up so you guys could see what I'm talking about. You tweeted this out. It says, Bitcoiners have been tricked into defending a caricature of themselves. The Bitcoin maxi, as described by critics, barely exists outside of 0.1% of Twitter accounts. However, this deception causes people to be afraid to diverge from the caricature in public for fear of ostracism. You've got a lot of vocabulary. Interesting. <laughs> in other words, a trick has been played on us by those who would not want to see us succeed. We should dismantle it. Dismantle the straw man caricature, not Bitcoin maximalism slash Bitcoin only. So yeah. when this came out, it was originally just this tweet and you had a bunch of plebs pile on. Sure. Uh, what did you mean by that? And what do you what is yeah. the bit what is the caricature? What's going on? Yeah. So what I was trying to get at there, and I, I learned a good lesson in wording things a little more clearly. I'm not used to as many people paying attention to everything I say. Um so what I'm trying to get at is there is currently basically an attack on Bitcoin that is going on on Twitter. And like the vector of this attack is you have these critics. And in order to do the attack, they have to equate everyone that is Bitcoin only. So they don't do they don't do shit coins. They don't invest in crypto. They don't do tokens. They don't do blockchains. And they have to equate them with let's just call it like the 0.1% of most aggressive like Bitcoiners. And it's not a criticism of those people. Like this is not a criticism, but it's saying if they can say that all Bitcoin only people are like these people that are the most aggressive to you on Twitter, then all they have to do is like critique that one method of operating and say, look, we've invalidated every Bitcoiner, everyone who cares about Bitcoin. And the secret there is it then implies that if you aren't like that, that you should do crypto, right? That the only people who don't do crypto are like 99th percentile most disagreeable. And I have a problem with that just because it's not true. And like in, you know, in my job, I, I and, and for years, like I've met Bitcoiners that are Bitcoin only, like that are plumbers, electricians and farmers to Wall Street execs, accountants and lawyers, people on the left, people on the right, men, women, disagreeable people, you know, very, very kind and, and you know, patient people. And, I you know, it takes all types. Right. And I think by like kind of making it very narrow, it's easier for critics of Bitcoin to attack Bitcoin. It's easier for them to do this really cheap kind of debate tactic and this cheap criticism and like invalidate all of the people that only work on Bitcoin, that don't, don't do crypto, that don't do all these things. And I think it's, uh, so that's what the tweet was about. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was so, it was, 
I, I think you were telling me in private DM, right? Like, I'm not used to this much attention. And then I think I told you, it was like, welcome to Twitter. Um, so yeah, uh, but I'm glad that you clarified it. Um, I'm glad that you're on our, our side. So just to make sure, because I'm going to get some plebs asking this question, you do support Bitcoin maximalism. Absolutely. And you do understand and see its utility. Absolutely. No, and like none of that is a critique of Bitcoin maximalism, right? I fully support Bitcoin maximalism. I'm Bitcoin only, like I only work on Bitcoin. And I think there's like an important like defensive role, right? Like there's a white blood cell sort of thing that, you know, I think there's a very valid argument to be made for. Um, but I think that like when we engage, right, when those criticisms are made, and I, I think like, if we engage by then just like defending their narrow definition of Bitcoin maximalism, we then like validate it. And now we're playing on their footing, right? Like they've defined the terms of the debate instead of being like, yeah, that's interesting. Some Bitcoiners are like that, but not all. What's your criticism of Bitcoin? Right. But they get away with being able to just like like all of the tweets are just attacking Bitcoin maxis. It's nothing constructive about Bitcoin. But the, the takeaway that I, I think people on the outside get is like, oh, like they've invalidated like this group of people that focus on Bitcoin. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So pivot a little bit. Thank you for clearing that up, Stephen. I was going to get ripped a new one if I didn't ask you. So now yeah. I have. Um, okay. So Lawrence, you yeah. tweeted this out. You actually have this pinned. Let me pull it up. It says blue line generates income to pay interest on red line. See the problem. And for audio listeners, the blue line, right, is the gross domestic product, I'm assuming, of the United States. And then all sectors, debt, securities, loans, liability, and level. And for audio listeners, the red line is literally going parabolic and the blue line is going up, but it's not even coming close to keeping up with the red line. So obviously there's a disconnect and just a little observation, uh, you know, a little pleb observation. If you zoom in, it looks like that disconnect started very close to our, our famous date in Bitcoin, 1971, which is when Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard. And actually that was yesterday, August 15th, 1971. So it's not the birthday cause it's August 16th, but it is really close. Anyways, Lawrence, what do you mean by this? And then also, Next question after this is you tag Weimar, right? Then you tag the fourth turning, and then you t then you tag Got Gold. So what's going on there, Lawrence? Well, so, I mean, everyone listening understands this. I mean, the issue we've got is the system's broken, and it's broken because we're running on a Keynesian model, which says that we have to continually grow the economy, um, not make the economy more efficient. And as a result of that, um, we've focused on the wrong thing, which is growth, and we've used debt to create growth, and we've we built an enormous credit structure similar to what they did in 1929 before that crash. And, um, you know, if your debt continues to compound and grow uh, at a rate in excess of the underlying productivity of the of the economy, which is what the GDP represents, you know, eventually you're going to come to a debt crisis, a sovereign debt crisis, which is really where we're at right now. The last one we had was in the early 1900s, and, and now we're having another one. And and that's why most people don't really understand what's going on. I mean, you know, everyone who's invested in the last, certainly since 09 and, and arguably even for the last 40 years, um, you know, has, has thought that um, what we've got is going to be able to continue. And what we're seeing is that we're ending, we're getting near the end of the road. You know, fiat is about to fail. 
um, and it's about to fail because of this math. And that's why it's so easy and obvious for Cleves and everybody else who's in this trade to understand that, you know, they, they can't continue to print at the rates they've been printing at. And yet they have to, or else the whole thing will collapse. I mean, they're in a, they're in a trap, which is what Richard Russell used to call inflate or die. And so, you know, if they don't, if they don't continue to create credit and add new money into the system and dilute the value of the existing money, the system's going to implode. But if they do, and they do at higher and higher rates, the money's going to become worthless. So um, they're really in, they really have a Hobson's choice. And, you know, unfortunately, they, they're not even aware of it, or, or to the degree that they are aware of it, they're being disingenuous about it, which is probably more likely. And they're kind of whipping us back and forth. And as I, I've used the term in the past, you know, we're, we're kind of going through this pattern of economic whiplash, you know, where money is incredibly easy because of COVID and stimulus and all the stuff we need to keep the economy running. And then suddenly, oh, no, we got an inflation problem. Money's incredibly tight in theory, although it's not as tight as they say it is because the QT hasn't been going as quickly as they announced. But the point is that, you know, and, and you look at what this does to prices. I mean, nobody knows what the real price is of anything these days because the money's broken. And so, you know, if you go, I mean, I, a good example of this, if you look at a chart of the price of lumber for the last six or seven years, I mean, it just, it looks like a complete zigzag. You know, I mean, it, it goes shooting up, then it comes plunging down, then it goes shooting up, then it comes plunging down. I mean, you know, uh, six months ago, there were bidding wars on every new house for sale in my area. You know, right now, um, there's nobody making any bids on houses and the bids are all coming down from where they were. And so, you know, this is this is a broken monetary system that we're living within right now. And, um, you know, it, it needs to be fixed and it needs to be fixed with sound money. And, and Bitcoin is the ultimate form of sound money. So, um, you know, it'll fix it. But, you know, unfortunately, between here and there, there's going to be a lot. There's going to be a lot more of these zigzags. Right. <laughs> So speaking of zigzags, right, um, yeah. the recent CPI numbers came out. Uh, it was at 8.5%. Right. Um, and to play devil's advocate, I don't believe this personally, <laughs> right. but uh, to play devil's advocate, if we, we are to quote the Biden administration um, currently in, in office in power, the Democrats, they said that um, 0% inflation uh, this last month. That's to quote them. So um, they weren't wrong in the sense that month on month, it was zero percent year over year. It was your eight plus number. Um, and, you know, th these numbers are going to be noisy and they're and they're all wrong to begin with. I mean, shadow government stats shows it at 18 percent. You know, rents are up 20 percent year on year. Um, gasoline's up over 100 percent year on year. So it depends on how you weight it. So all these numbers are just bullshit in the same way that the employment figure they just had. I mean, they just claimed <laughs> that they created 500,000 new jobs. I mean. That's just a complete fiction. I mean, you know, they, look, you can't, I mean, this, we live in an Orwellian, you know, narrative driven society where, you know, Biden and this administration right now, their major concern is to try and hold everything together until the election so that they don't get completely wiped out in the election. And so, you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to try to pretend that we are creating jobs. They're going to try to pretend that inflation's under control. They're going to, you know, they're going to lie about a lot of things. Right. And, uh, you know, we just, I mean, we got to look through those lies and, and eventually those lies will be shown to be lies, but it takes time. Right. Yeah. Speaking of lies, um, the recent act that was passed through Congress was literally called the Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> right. right. 
that yeah, hired. And we're going to go spend a bunch of money and call it the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, and, and I mean, again, Orwellian, suddenly two quarters of negative GDP growth is no longer a recession. I mean, for, for all of my business career, two quarters of D GDP um, you know, decline, that's the definition of a recession. You know, the, the 210 spread has never been so inverted or as, as inverted as it has ever been. It's kind of a tie. But the fact of the matter is we are, you know, we are going into a serious economic downturn. Um, and, you know, you see it in a lot of places. The New York um, Empire uh, Manufacturing Survey came out yesterday and it was expected to be plus five. It was minus 31. You know, I mean, there's a lot of data points, right, that, you know, you see all the big companies are starting to talk about layoffs or hiring freezes. Um, but having said that, there is a lot of momentum in this economy. I mean, all that free money got out there. And, you know, I was thinking we were going to go instantly right into a big depression. It may not. We may not. I mean, there's a there are competing forces here. And there's an argument that says, you know, I mean, particularly as you look at what the stock market's doing, it's kind of amazing me that the stock market's held up the way it has. You know, that, that people are looking through Powell's tough talk, thinking he's going to pivot at some point, And we're kind of going to a, more of a, um, a crack up boom, you know, kind of going forward. And I think that's certainly one of the cases you have to consider. So could you define real quick and then pass it on to Stephen? What yeah. is I, I've heard Ron Paul talked about. It, I think I saw his video. But what is a crack up boom for every for anybody that doesn't understand? And sure. what is the difference between that and the normal depression slash recession that you were expecting? Yeah. So a crack up boom is when the money when people start to realize that the money is bad and that that everything is going to cost more in the future and that whatever money they have, they they should um, spend because they want to. Um, take advantage of prices today because they're going to have to pay more in the future. Everyone rushes to spend and borrow and they shove, you know, and they create a bigger inflation problem because they're, you know, they're, they don't want to hold the hot potato called the dollar. And to the degree that they're able to, you know, borrow uh, and buy real assets. I mean, part of the reason why it wasn't like in the last year and a half, you saw the housing prices go up a lot, right? That wasn't because housing suddenly become more valuable. Those are great houses. Oh God, we got to have, no, that was because people were smart. They're saying to themselves, hang on a second, we're going to have a ton of inflation. The government will lend me 80% of the value of this asset for 3%, 30-year mortgage at the time. It's higher now. And, you know, and it's going to go up in value. You know, that's a that's a piece of cake, right? I, I mean, that's a that's the Hugo Stennis inflation trade. And, you know, I'm going to make that all day long. So, um, you know, that that a crack-up boom really is when people come to – and this is what this is what the definition of hyperinflation is, by the way. I mean, when people all come to realize that there is no going back and that the government can never stop printing money and that, in fact, it's the policy to print money and, in fact, it's going to get even worse, then you get to the point where people will take every dollar they have and every dollar they borrow and go and spend it in order to try to defend themselves against the depreciating value of the currency. So that's that's a crack up boom. Gotcha. Okay, so I'm going to go back to that, but pass it on to Stephen. Stephen, do you do you see? Are we out of the woods yet? Do you see this as a recovery, or do you believe that this is just a relief rally and the recession hasn't even started yet? Yeah. So I mean, part of the system, right? Like, it needs inflation. Like, the government needs inflation. It's the only way out of like the debt situation. They need to debase the currency. And they also need the asset assets to continue to rise, to drive tax receipts, to drive spending. So much of the U.S. economy at this point is just uh, 
you know, it's just capital gains rotating into spending, right? So much of the money that gets spent in the economy is asset appreciation. Like, like inflation is the primary export of the U.S. Uh, yeah. It's their primary product. And when I say inflation, I don't just mean like goods going up. I mean asset inflation and I mean printing money. Like that's what the U.S. does really well. Um, and so, you know, unless something really changes, right? Like the bet, right? Like the status quo is assets go up, right? Like that's, that's what things do in America and money, the monetary base is expanded. Um, I'm inclined and right, this is all probabilistic. Like I'm not making a super firm call on the future, but I, I, I'm inclined to say the lows are in. Maybe we, we have a leg down again. Do we go below 17? Unless like the S&P 500 falls off a cliff and is down 25, 30%. I'm inclined to say, I'm inclined to say no. And part of the other thinking there is I'm, I'm pretty much on the side that the Fed is near its limit. I'm, I do not believe that the, that the, the Fed, that the government, that the economy can tolerate a, a five or a 6% federal funds rate. It's going to drive tax receipts off a cliff and the Fed's going to need to finance the deficit because we still need to pay for defense. We still need to pay for entitlements. We still need to pay our interest uh, on, our, on our debt. And like if that, if that federal fund rate gets too high, then it can't do it. Like we can't do it. So when I look at it and I see, you know, let's say September, we come into September, let's just say they hike 75 basis points, we're at about 3%. How much higher can they really go? And, and that's what I think we're looking at is the market is kind of seeing that we're, we're closer to the end of where they're going to get rates to than the beginning. At least that's my bias. Um, and so unless something changes radically, right, um, I don't, you know, it's very difficult for me to see us going to, you know, 15 or something. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So it's funny because it, you, you were thinking about it from the Bitcoin perspective, because I think about it the same way, right? And Bitcoin is acting like a risk on asset, right? And it is closely sure. following, you know, the S&P and the NASDAQ, right? And that's yeah. just the reality right now. You know, as much as you say, oh, you know, Bitcoin is a hedge against inflation, which, of course, if you're denominating your wealth in Bitcoin, you don't care. It's all about growing your Bitcoin stack. But, you know, that's one of the narratives that the the naysayers are like, no, it's not doing that. Anyways, so back to Lawrence, because what you were saying was really interesting, right? Do you think in the United States, hyperinflation is possible and is it inevitable from your perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's anything is possible, right? I mean, it's maybe it's a 5% case, but probability case. Uh, is it inevitable? It's unclear. It depends on how things unfold. Um, I think it's likely to be inevitable on a long enough time scale. Um, but I think they're, they're pretty good at kicking the can and holding things together. And uh, so they tend to kind of walk back from the edge. Um, but we keep getting closer and closer to that edge. And it's a, you know, the reason I can't answer the question with any kind of definity is it's a psychological issue. It has to do with when that confidence is lost. I mean, I think the Fed's credibility has already been very badly damaged, but there's, it still has some. And, you know, I think it's entirely possible that the government will try, I mean, uh, you know, from time to time to get more responsible and be more responsible, recognizing the risk of hyperinflation. So, 
I can't say, you know, with a hundred percent certainty, it's going to happen. I, I mean, there's, you know, I don't know hundred percent certainty the sun's going to rise right tomorrow, but, but the point is that, you know, it's all probabilities, but it's certainly the pattern that we're on. I, you know, I, let me say this, I think rather than absolutely going all the way to hyperinflation, I think there's a much higher probability that we have a five or a 10 year period of extremely high inflation, which then, is, and, and, and actually, you know, the GDP kind of grows and, and the economy kind of muddles along and maybe the stock market doesn't fall apart. Um, and everyone is in dollar terms poorer, you know, because of all this inflation. But, um, but we make it through and the debt becomes a more manageable number relative to the size of the economy. I mean, I think that's the optimistic case of how we get out of this. Um, I think the, the more pessimistic case is that it just starts to all spin out of control. And I think there's a very, it's, it's you know, it's got to be 30, 40% chance, maybe higher, that that occurs, that, you know, the, um, so that, you know, here's how it would unfold, right? The government runs bigger deficits. Um, you know, foreigners continue to sell our treasury bonds. I mean, I just saw today, China's treasury bonds holdings are down month on month this last month. They have been for some time. Um, the, interest rates continue to go up because people, you know, the, the market no longer believes that inflation is coming back down. I mean, inflation swaps all say that inflation is going down to two or three percent in the next few years, which I don't think it is. We're, that, those days are gone. We've turned the corner. We are now in an inflationary environment for the next 10, 15 yeah. years, in my view. And so as a result of that, um, you know, the bond market starts to sell off and rates start to go higher. As Steve so you know, eloquently pointed out earlier, government can't afford higher inflation rates or I mean higher interest rates. You got $30 billion worth of debt or $30 trillion worth of debt. You apply a five, six, 7% rate. I mean, 7% on 30 would be 2.1 trillion. I mean, that's half of what we collect in tax receipts. That's twice the defense, almost, you know, twice the defense budget. So the fact of the matter is that um, as, as these rates go higher, as people lose faith in bonds, sell bonds off, rates go higher, then the government's forced to come in and start buying the bond market, right? And that's really third world kind of stuff, right? We're running a deficit. Nobody wants our bonds. We're going to print money to pay for our bonds, right? Okay. Well, you know, and our balance sheet's going to get even bigger. And, and you see where I'm going here is as with each of these steps, more and more people come to the conclusion that, oh, my God, America's like Argentina or America's like Weimar. They can't stop and they're never going to stop. You know, get me out of this burning thing called the dollar. You know, give me something that I know will not depreciate in value. You know, a house, you can live in it, a car, you can drive it, you know, um, crops, you know, commodities, all kinds of things, um, you know, gold, silver, Bitcoin, anything that's not going to depreciate in value, anything but a bond and arguably somewhat anything but a stock. I mean, the stocks will hold their value in the sense that they represent a claim on a, on a business that earns, you know, that has earnings power that will reprice in whatever the new currency turns out to be. But yeah, I mean, I, to answer your question, is hyperinflation a possibility? Absolutely. Is it a certainty? No, it's not a certainty. There are other paths, but it's it's much higher probability than it's been any time since I started in this sound money game, you know, in the 80s. I mean, it's, you know, we're well down the path. And, you know, you look at these curves on a lot of these things. I mean, look at the second derivative of this stuff. It's insane. I mean, it's, you know, right. I mean, what we just saw, I mean, we just added 40% to the M2, to the money supply in two year time frame. I mean, that's, that's never been done before. So, so we're, in, we're in a huge monetary experiment created by the idiots who, you know, Ben Bernanke, who I call modern day John Law, 
who basically, you know, put us at zero percent interest rates from 08 until 2015 in order to get out of the housing bubble, which they had also created by taking rates down too low after the bursting of the dot com bubble, which they created. So, you know, it's I mean, these people are idiots. And, you know, the the, the you know, the great thing about Bitcoin is Bitcoiners understand Bitcoiners realize it. I mean, in large part, thanks to SAFE, right? SAFE's book has changed the world, probably the most important book written in the last 15 years, you know, because it educated the youth of this country into what the, what's being done to their money. And so, you know, as that word spreads, it's going to continue to spread, you know, Bitcoin's going to take over, right? And, you know, the boomers who believe in gold, they'll eventually convert to Bitcoin and Bitcoin will ultimately, you know, swap and beat gold. I mean, gold's going to be around for a while, though. It's not... You know, sailors hold view that Bitcoin's going to just destroy gold instantly. That's that's not realistic. That's that's it's going to be a multi-year process. Yeah, I agree. So I, I I'm you know I can't say it the way that you say it, Lawrence, but I, I fundamentally agree with you know the way that you're looking at it. But I am the thing about the youth, though. Um, what from my experience, because I am a millennial, right, is right. that most are still asleep. Most believe that it's a political issue and the Republicans and Democrats do something really interesting because when the Democrats are in power, I say, oh, it's, you know, it's it, the Republicans are like, oh, it's the Democrats. And then when the Republicans are in power, the Democrats are like, it's the Republicans. If we vote them out, things will change. But and I think that a lot of the youth is still caught up in that whole, you know, divide and conquer uh, that the Uniparty does in the United States. And they're still looking for a political solution and they're blind to the fact that, hey, it's not politics that's going to solve this. It's the fact that the money's broken. Right. If you want things to change, you got to fix the money in the first place. So I, you know, and I do dedicate my life to making content, right? So I hope, you know, more people wake up, but I am, I'm not, opti I'm not optimistic about it, to be honest with you. Um, what I see, most people that are interested in Bitcoin are in their 30s and 40s. Most people in their 20s are, what, you know, excuse my language, what shit coin, what dog shit coin can I buy? Look oh. at my NFT. They're not really concerned or interested in sound money. Um, and that's really unfortunate. Steven, how, how do you think that could be changed? Do you think that people, yeah. because what I've noticed, right, is that, you know, I've been educating people on Bitcoin for about six years now. And what I notice is people in countries that never had a historic stable fiat. That's, you know, that's funny. Uh, historic yeah. stable fiat currency, if that even exists. They understand it in a snap of a finger. But it's actually people in the West sure. that are just like, yeah. it uses too much energy. So yeah, do you think that could be dollar. changed, Stephen? Yeah. So it's actually, so this is part of... Um, I think this is evident in a lot of areas in society, right? And something I've I've come to think of it in this way that like our generation and 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 the boomer generation, like we all inherited like a like a very prosperous world from our ancestors, right? Like you had you know, humanity was like for the most part highly concerned with creating more material abundance for kind of all of human history, right? And so, you know, going back a few hundred years, the U.S. developed like tons of commodity production, tons of industrial capacity, tons of these things that make the real world work. 
and we inherited, I like to think of it as like we had a buffer, right? We had this great buffer where if like we make a bad energy decision or we make a bad industrial decision in like, you know, 1970 or 1980, well, we have this great buffer from the abundance that our ancestors, basically the excess capacity they produced. And so we do something stupid in 1970 or 1980 and it eats into the buffer but you don't immediately see like CPI inflation. Like if we have a bad energy policy in 1980 or 1990, like the cost of electricity doesn't shoot up 20%, right? Um, but, you know, over the decades, I feel that we have exhausted that buffer. And that's one of the reasons I think as we're making energy decisions today, as we're making these policy decisions, like that's starting to be like reflected in actual cost of living and actual like day to day lives. And I think part of the reason we've been able to get so narrative driven, like, uh, you know, like we talked about earlier, it just like so focused on like, okay, we're just going to believe a narrative instead of maybe like lived experience or, or reality is because like we've been able to divorce these policy decisions. Like they don't really impact people's lives. They're able to go and like switch out like, you know, energy supplies and do different things. And like, you don't really see it in the price, but I think that's changing. And I think as we encounter these real world constraints, right? Like, at, like if we continue to make bad energy decisions, like the price of energy is going to get like significantly more expensive. And so I think once we have that feedback mechanism where like a political decision results in real world consequences fairly immediately or closer, I think people start to see, oh my God, when they tell me like, we're just going to subsidize, you know, we're going to stop funding nuclear. We're just going to subsidize the heck out of solar. And that immediately like results in your electricity bill going up like, oh, wow, like there's a consequence to our actions. And so and this comes in like also commodity supply, availability of oil, all these things. Right. And I think we're, we're coming up against this moment where there's more of a, a real consequence to our policy. And this is also true in money. It's also true in economic growth. Right. So I'm actually optimistic that as we face more constraints, more real challenges, it actually increases the probability that as a country, we can start making good decisions, right? That we can start like actually prioritizing what we need to thrive as a civilization of which like money is the chief coordinator, energy is the master resource. And, you know, we go from there. Yeah. So it's actually really interesting because you're kind of touching upon what I was touching upon earlier, where um, and this kind of goes back to the fourth turning theory, which I'm going to about to ask um, Lawrence about, really, because uh, he put that in his hashtag, um, where it's just this idea where hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create bad times. And then kind of the cycle repeats itself. And what I got from what you were saying, Stephen, was we had a whole lot of good times. And now we're entering into this era of weak men, and I'm, I'm not being specific, have created bad times. And then through those bad times, right, which is I think what you were referring to, the actual real life consequences of certain political decisions are creating real life pain. And perhaps through that pain, it awakens enough people for there to actually be change, right? So yeah. um, the, the fourth turning theory I find fascinating. So I'm going to pass it on to Lawrence. Lawrence, what is the fourth turning? Are we in one right now 
what is going on? Yeah, so it, I'm referring to a book by Howard Strauss called The Fourth Turning, which was written quite a while ago. It was actually very prescient, though, in terms of what's unfolded. And the theory is that there are four, there are four you know, every 20 years you have a new generation, a group, you know, kind of um, that, that kind of controls the dialogue in society and, um, and what the society is doing. And, you know, you start off with a, with a revolution and, and kind of the beginning of, of things. And then at the end, the fourth turning is the fourth step of, of the evolution of society. It's when basically it's when um, the, the system breaks. The system was built on a model that no longer accurately reflects or solves the problems that we're dealing with. And two notable fourth turnings prior to this are, um, you know, the, the Depression and World War II. And then the one prior to that was the Civil War. And actually the one prior to that was the American Revolution. So uh, and they tend to come about every 80 years or so. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, we came out of World War II, you know, um, very, yeah, this is a good overview of it. We came out of World War II, you know, very much on a high um, of, you know, we won the war and, and things were good and we squandered it. You know, we, um, you know, America misbehaved with, you know, we, we, we could have behaved in the way that our constitution suggested we behave, but you know, evil guys got in control of things and, and of course wanted more in terms of both wealth and political power. And so the CIA got heavily involved in determining what the country does and did a lot of evil shit. And, um, you know, the people kind of went along with it because most people are just trying to feed their family and live their lives. And so, you know, they murdered our president on national TV in 1963 and we all just kind of looked the other way. And some of us knew it was wrong, but, there was nothing we could really do to change the system. And we had a very hierarchical centralized system. I mean, I've said it often started when Henry Ford invented the assembly line in the twenties, you put people in a factory and they can make things much more quickly and efficiently. And so centralization was good throughout most of this society, you know, most of the century. And, you know, it got really good, you know, in world war II, we managed to figure out how to slaughter 40 million people in six years. So that's really centralized killing in war. It was, it was, you know, very efficient. And what's happened is we've kind of reached the point where centralization uh, no longer serves us um, because, you know, a Hitler can grab control of a country or you can have, you know, evil people in any country. And we've got our own set of evil people on both sides, in my view. So um, and they can lead you down the wrong path. You know, they can lead you down a fiat money path the way Nixon did, uh, which creates contillionaires of all the corrupt people and screws the common man. And, um, you know. I mean, it's, it's obvious that the society we've got right now is horribly broken on a lot of different uh, metrics. I mean, the, the most notable politically, you know, 80% of America or more wants term limits. And yet the people who run the show, you know, won't let us have term limits. I mean, what kind of representative democracy is that? It's bullshit. So, you know, and you see it everywhere. I mean, the, the, there's just there's so many signs of it. And Bitcoin points it out. The monetary sign is the most obvious one, the way the wealth concentration and the continual inflation and you know, the average people have been stolen from. And so as a result of that, you know, eventually what happens is the, the system collapses on itself. I mean, in the way that the Soviet Union fell or, you know, other, other bad and broken systems blow apart, um, this one is in the process of blowing apart. And I think the subject matter for this fourth turning, the thing that's going to cause it to blow it apart is the bad money. Um, and so, you know, in my opinion, we're having a sovereign debt crisis, which is very likely to lead to super high inflation, perhaps, you know, hyperinflation. And guess what? That's going to wake everybody up. You know, um, <laughs> it's going to definitely wake everybody up. And uh, 
uh, your generation, the millennial generation is going to be tasked with coming in and fixing it. And, uh, you know, you will, I mean, we will. So it, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sad, but it's, it's natural. It's what happens in these kinds of systems. And it's, it's very clear to me that that's what we're in the middle of. And they tend to last about 20 years. I think this one started in 2008. So, um, you know, that would take us to 2028. Uh, it was kind of an end point, which seems about right to me. I mean, it could go a bit longer or shorter. I mean, Civil War was sh a short one. Uh, World War II was kind of an extended one if you kind of include uh, the Depression and the Civil War. It's, you know, it was more like a 15-year, uh, 20 years. It depends on when you, you start it. But anyway, long, long story short, we're in a fourth turning, and I think all the rules are going to change. And so that has enormous implications for people who manage money and people who want to save money and people who want to store their wealth. And uh, in my opinion, you know, we just had 40 years of deflation. That's over. Um, so that's, that's going to be probably the worst place to be in the next 10 or 15 years. And we're about to have a period where sound money people are going to be enormously rewarded for seeing the issue that's broken and placing their bets in front of what's likely to occur to, to fix the issue. And, and that, that's why, you know, Bitcoin will go to a million bucks a coin and gold's going to go to $10,000 and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's happening and. You know, I wish it would happen a little quicker. Uh, you guys are definitely going to see it all the way through to the end. I will, too, if I keep working out and stay healthy. But but it's, uh, you know, it could take another 10 or 15 years. I mean, I, you know, I honestly, I thought it was happening in 2008. I thought that was it. I thought the system was going to break. And I thought that, um, you know, we would we would get a solution to these problems. But, you know, they managed to paper it all over and put it back together again. And, and it's entirely possible to do it this time, too. You know, and they'll extend this thing. I mean, they've you know, they do control the narrative, right? You know, they've got, they've got the airwaves. And I mean, I look at how stupid there, the it, it's slightly, how, go ahead, yeah. go ahead. Look at how stupid the country was to fall for, you know, a total shutdown over the flu. And I say to myself, I get it. I mean, now I get how, you know, Hitler was able to come in and say, you know, it's these Jews who've done this to us. They printed all that money in Weimar. We need to kill them all. And, you know, a bunch of civilized Germans fell for that shit. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, and in the, in the same way, I mean, it's a, you know, it really was a mass psychosis. Right. Oh, we've yeah. got this killer virus. that's going to kill you all. If you don't take if you don't get triple vax and let us take control of your body, you know, you're going to die a painful death. I mean, Jesus Christ. What You know, and, and you know, people fell for it. Everybody mm -hmm. fell for it. It was ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. So, you know, and, and but but again, in each of these turnings, it's not we don't have to have a majority you know, I mean, look, look at the American Revolution, right? I mean, there were a lot of loyalists. You know, the revolutionaries weren't that big a, a number relative to the total population. You know, and, and the same is true of the sound money crew. I mean, we're, we're pretty small right now, but we're going to grow. And when the currency, you know, when we have massive inflation and perhaps the currency collapse, we're going to get a lot bigger. And at that point in time, we're going to fix it. That's what's going to happen. It's 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 a fascinating theory. I I I tend to really buy into it, which is why I asked you about it. Right? Here's another really good graph. It goes from 1850, 1870. This is 1929, 1949, 2008 to 2028. Right? So spot on. I agree. I I think we're really living through two things right now. Um, the disintermediation of information. Um, the government is losing a monopoly on the gatekeepers of information, which is why they're pushing so hard 
with the fact checking and the accredited sources. If it doesn't come from an accredited source, you know, you get deplatformed, right? Uh, But I am concerned, um, and I'm going to pass it on to Steven, the amount of people that they were able to convince was absolutely terrifying. And I'm going to tie it up with Bitcoin, right? We already start. We're already starting to see the political pushback on Bitcoin. the 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 regulatory yep. attack is being defined, right? In the last week, what we saw was for the first time a, a non individual, non government, a, a technology, specifically yeah. an open source yeah. software, was sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury. Because I cover simply Bitcoin, sure. I've been watching them attack, and this is the second time the Treasury did this. The infrastructure bill, the must-pass infrastructure bill, they snuck in an amendment basically labeling Bitcoin miners as potential money transmitters. And Cynthia Lummis is still having trouble um, amending that. And we know it was the Treasury because Cynthia Lummis in a press conference said, hey, to quote her, the Treasury got a jump on us, right? So, Stephen, does it worry you when... The propaganda machine of of a dying nations of the dying nation state model gets turned on, and its focus becomes Bitcoin. What 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 do us plebs do? We even have a shot to fight against that? What are your thoughts? Yeah, there's a few things there. I mean, that's a that's a rich topic, obviously. Um, so there, you know, there's arguments on both sides, right? Like, and uh, you know, one thing I will say is that like. As Bitcoiners, we need to fight against any of that privacy overreach, no matter where it is. Like it doesn't it doesn't matter where it is. Like we need that will turn into an attack on Bitcoin. Um, so you know, in favor of like, so if I'm gonna if I'm gonna argue kind of the case, like regulation isn't gonna be that much of a problem. I think there's two main things I would say, and like one is that we're in an era of like really low state capacity and basically all that like just the state is not effective the state is not efficient it is it is it is decaying it is weak it is like you look at even like you can look at the executive branch right like the president cannot even choose their own like staff like they can't fire people who work in the white house that's how little uh, executive power the executive branch has. And that's like very contradictory with early American governance where like, I mean, you look at FDR, like the man was a dictator, like, like nearly right. Like, ve- like much more similar, like more in common with a dictator than what the current president has in common with a president. Right. So there's been this hollowing out of the like capabilities. Right. And so as much as like, the argument against a lot of the government concern is like it has become just like very ineffective. Um, and so in that in that ineffective system, you also have a ton of uh, senators like Senator Lummis. You have other senators, you have representatives, you have people in you know all the various departments that actually really like Bitcoin. Like there are a number of people in U.S. governance and in our power structures, in our corporations, our, you know, people that have money and power that actually really, really like Bitcoin. Bitcoin's kind of this quintessentially American thing. I really, I really do think. Um, And so you combine like the weak state capacity with like 
actually there's a number of defenders in government. And, you know, it, it creates a situation where it seems like a pretty big lift for the state to do something monumental against Bitcoin, right? Like, especially given that so many people own it. There's, I did this calculation once it was, you know, when prices were higher, but it was like, if you add up all the Bitcoin that's owned by Americans, all the Bitcoin related equities that are owned by Americans, all the funds, everything, you get to something like I think, uh, and this was after Bitcoin had come down off the high, like si like six or seven hundred billion dollars of total exposure to Bitcoin in America. And so, for the U.S. to like nuke that, right? Like that's a huge wealth destruction in the country. It's very politically unpopular. Um, so there's friction. The state's relatively weak. There's defenders, and I think all of that is arguments against like some sort of huge regulatory crackdown. On the other hand, I think the much more risky thing, the thing that worries me is kind of like the institutionalization of Bitcoin, mm. right? I think the much larger risk is that it becomes just like Wall Street Bitcoin, right? Like it becomes. And so let's be clear, like this is a slippery slope, like the slippery, the slippery slope to institutionalize Bitcoin is is lubricated by number go up, right? Like, let's be very clear here, like everyone getting into Bitcoin solely for price appreciation is like the avenue by which Bitcoin can kind of lose its soul and lose its kind of general purpose. And if it becomes too institutionalized, if it becomes, uh, you know, just this asset that's owned on Wall Street, that's part of a portfolio that, you know, they can kind of cripple it. And like, you know, we had a, we saw this playbook, right? Like with gold, right? With paper gold, with all these things that happened. And like, I think that's the real attack vector. Um, and I think it's important that, you know, Bitcoin has values that it stands for beyond just like price, price appreciation. And, and I, I believe Bitcoin does have those values. I'm not saying we don't. I'm not saying the community doesn't. But it's important that those are maintained. Um, cause I think that's the, that's the biggest vulnerability because there's, a, there's a way where like, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how much, uh, you know, essentially this, the, the, the tornado situation, how much, how much they cave to regulators, which I think is going to be a lot. Um, and you know, in Bitcoin, if they do come at Bitcoin on some of these privacy levels on some of these, like like it's it's a fungibility question right like like of like bat like tainted coins right like there can't be tainted coins we can't let that be the thing because that injects like this huge weakness um and so as a community like we need to i think that's the main thing we need to like take a firm stance against um and you know that's that involves a lot of people right that involves that involves plebs that involves investors that involves lobbyists that's that involves like the whole the whole gamut. But just to wrap it up into your question, like I'm not I'm not too worried about some sort of like big regulatory attack at this phase, but I think I think the so the Goldilocks scenario for Bitcoin I think is gradual adoption. I I feel mm. pretty strongly that like what gives Bitcoin the best chance at succeeding is gradual adoption, not this like sudden like exponential like 70% of people in the country are now saving all their money in Bitcoin. Like that shoots the price up, yeah, but like that creates a real structural threat. And I mm. think there's this like razor's edge where Bitcoin needs to grow and amass more capital, get bigger. 
Um, but without triggering like a full frontal assault from the state, which like, I don't think would kill it. Like, I'm not saying it would kill it, but it would make life difficult. And I think if it can stay in this middle ground where it's growing, more people are using it, it's becoming more adopted, but it's not growing so fast that it threatens the, like the immediate solvency of the dollar system. And we can maintain that for five years. I think that's the sweet spot. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I've actually said that too, right? Is the what worries me is not Bitcoin winning at the end. What worries me is the transition period. Yes. And how many casualties will happen during the transition, right? We do have movement. The two specific attacks on Bitcoin right now, the propaganda attacks are the mining attack, the energy usage. They won't be successful because the mining incentives are just too big. And you kind of have this game, better flag theory playing out where they ban it in China, they go to Texas, they ban it in Texas, they go to El Salvador. So that's going to keep happening. Um, so I don't think they'll be successful there, but they're going to try. But the thing that does worry me, and this is what's really gearing up, is the right to self-custody. And sure. it's exactly what you said, Stephen, right? Most people, they buy Bitcoin, right? And they leave it where they bought it, right? Um Actually, that's one of the things I like about Swan, too, is that you guys incentivize uh, self-custody. But most exchanges, right, they don't do that. They, you buy it on Coinbase, you're like, it's, my, it's on my bank account. I'm good. You know, I have nothing to worry about. And I fear that if that happens, is what Catlin Long has been screaming off the rooftops. Yeah. Rehypothecation. Rehypothecation, right, it gets, enough gets captured and you start creating paper Bitcoin. Right. And then that's essentially how the gold market was captured. Right. Same thing. So, Lawrence, do you believe because I know I know you like gold. Do you believe that is possible with Bitcoin or are you on the other side where because self-custody is so easy compared to gold, it's going to be a lot harder for them to do that? No, no, it's well, it's certainly a risk. Um, I mean, there are those who say, well, you know, we know where all the coins are. They're on the chain and that sets the price. So you, you don't have to worry about it. No, that's that's wrong. That's that whole line of thought is completely wrong. I mean, there are Bitcoin derivatives. As long as derivatives exist in the world, the person who's got the biggest balance sheet could theoretically win the derivative game. I mean, ask the Hunt brothers or, you know, ask anybody in the gold trade. I mean, and, and there is no bigger balance sheet, no bigger military, no bigger financial entity than the U.S. federal government. And, you know, they've clearly suppressed the price of gold for 40 years in order to keep fiat alive. So, um you know, there's no doubt in my mind that when in 2020, when Bitcoin went from the, you know, the 10,000 range up into the 50s very quickly, uh, that, you know, it set off alarm bells in Washington, D.C. and in a lot of places. And holy shit, this is real. This could really threaten us. Now, if you actually look at today, I mean, Glassnode has good numbers on what the total size of the derivative outstanding are. And there is a futures market that's relatively small. But, you know, these numbers are modest compared to the amount of Bitcoin that's traded every day or every you know, week or every year. Um, whereas in the gold comparison, you know, there's literally 100 to 1000 X the paper volume of gold trading versus physical gold, partly because it's hard to settle physical. I mean, you got to put it on an airplane, fly it around. It sits, it sits in vaults. But the point is that, you know, they could create the price of Bitcoin is set by a combination of things. It's set by what Coinbase will sell it to you for. But it's also said if somebody comes into the futures market, creates a bunch of paper Bitcoin and sells it, you know, then that absorbs some of the some of the demand, period. And the price will go down. And so it's entirely possible the U.S. federal government is going to get more aggressive and that all governments, including 
the BIS, et cetera, are going to get more aggressive at trying to suppress the price at the right period of time. Now, they, you know, it's going to be tougher than gold because in the gold case, you never saw gold go up 5x in three months, right? And so, you know, I mean, I mean, this is a very volatile beast, as we all know. And as a result of it being a volatile beast, you know, somebody, if, somebody, if they're on the long side of that futures trade, you know, they're going to get carried out. But we've seen them get carried out in the gold trade. And remember, when you've got the printing press, and I'm pretty sure the government runs a set of books, you know, off, off the, you know, they have, they have financial accounts off the books is the bottom line. So they let the BIS or they let JP Morgan, they let others short gold. And if they have a loss on those shorts, that gets made up somehow. And that it, it just doesn't get reported. Okay. And it, it falls under this. If it's legal scholars have looked at it pretty carefully, have seen that it falls under some stuff in the, in, in all the financial regs that talks about, you know, national security. I mean, it's kind of like the nuclear codes, right? I mean, if the U S if the U S dollar were to fail, that would threaten our national security. And so as a result, yeah. you know, very much in the same way they figured out, well, we got to kill Kennedy because he's a threat to the country. You know, they, they figured, well, we got to, you know, we got to suppress the price of gold because if the dollar fails, you know, we're going to, it's, it's going to affect our national security. Well, if it looks like Bitcoin is going to create, you know, a national security event by causing the dollar to fail. Yeah. You can bet that there's a good chance they'll be involved. And somebody on the tweet actually, or on the thread actually mentioned it's interesting and, and troublesome to me that BlackRock's getting more heavily involved in this because BlackRock basically is the government, as is J.P. Morgan, et cetera. So my view is, though, that this thing's moving pretty quickly and that they're, you know, they're stupid and slow. And so and, and we got, you know, we got really sharp spears. I mean, you know, the, the gold guys, we were out there fighting them with like, you know, swords and shit. And you guys have come along with like machine guns and, you know, good stuff. And, you know, so um I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna get them. Um, that's that's my view. I, this is moving too quickly. They're gonna have to print too much. The confidence is gonna be lost, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, I think we're gonna get them on this round. I mean, but I've been accused of being too optimistic in the past, and <laughs> and so you know, and, and and you know, these are very very dark forces, and they're they're evil people. They're they're bad evil people on the other side of the trade. There's no doubt about it. And, and, and we're playing. The other thing to keep in mind here is we're playing for all the marbles. I mean, we're playing for all the friggin' marbles. I mean, if, if fiat becomes worthless, Jay Powell's net worth is zero. Mm -hmm. And plebes have, plebes have more money than Jay Powell. Wouldn't that be great? Mm -hmm. I mean, and it could happen. It could absolutely happen. And so, um, and they know it. And so it's entirely possible that, uh, uh, you know, they're going to be more heavily involved and, and we've got to be prepared for that. Um, I, I think there's a good chance that somewhere along the line here, they're going to realize how big a problem they have and that there's going to be some kind of a monetary reset. Um, and so as a result of that, they're going to, they're going to try a CBDC or, you know, something, something that's different than what we have now. And that's not what we want to see as a full monetary reset, but that goes more in that direction. And so, um, you know, and we'll have to we'll have to deal with that when it comes up and we'll have to fight it. But, you know, I suspect this sound money fight is going to be uh, a hell of a fight. And I suspect it's going to play out over the next 10 years or so. So, yeah, I think go ahead, Stephen. Yeah, I think you'll like this. So actually, um, on, on what you just said, I like my my base case, and I think you'll like this one, um, is that 
what we see, like I, I, we're going to see inflation. I think we're going to see high inflation for the decade. I, I don't, I don't think it's like most, I'm not, I don't expect hyperinflation, but, but I expect consistent inflation. Um, but I think what we see, like the reset we see is I think we see the U S treasury, uh, removed as like reserve assets. So, and I think it becomes replaced. I actually think it becomes replaced with gold first because the central banks already own a ton of gold. Like they own all this gold. Like if they're going to replace the reserve asset, they're not going to go immediately to Bitcoin. That's just like not the initial step. I think, so I think U S treasury can get replaced by, by gold as this, this debt bubble kind of hits its zenith. Um, and then I think gold as a reserve asset is the pathway to Bitcoin. Like once you're using gold as a reserve asset, it's only a couple steps before you realize like, hey, well, maybe we should try using this Bitcoin thing so we don't have to ship this stuff around and guard it and, and you know, all this stuff. But, but that's actually kind of my like, I, I think that's my most likely scenario, right? Is that like the role of US Treasury as reserve gets replaced with a neutral reserve and I, I, that's almost certainly going to be gold, at least in the first few years. I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think Russia's trying to push us in that direction. There was mm -hmm. actually an announcement today talking about that. And China's got a lot more gold. And so does actually India, too. So, yep. you know, it's, it's entirely possible. Um, but, it's you know, it, this is all extremely uncertain, and we don't know how it's going to play out. But what I do know is that holding sound money in a, you know, in a monetary blizzard is the right way to go. And so these both of these things represent sound money, gold and Bitcoin. So, um, you know, that's I'm quite sure that my kids and grandkids are going to be appreciative of the fact that I've gone all in on this trade. You know, yeah. and, uh, you know there will be multi-generational wealth as a result of it. And I think, you know, I think I mean, having a single coin is going to is going to be an enormous thing in the future. I mean, these are going to millions millions if not tens of millions of dollars per coin in my view um but you know and and it's it's so obvious for me to see it right now i mean um you know there's a fixed number of them and adoption continues right i mean it's just the adoption is there it just keeps growing i mean this is this is the internet you know it, it's just it's it's just it's obvious it's obvious it's completely obvious so um you know we just have to sit back and watch it unfold. Obviously, it's going to take time. You know, it's going to take time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I second. And you, you buried the lead there, Lawrence, because what you were, and I think that this really has to do with the the growth of the administrative state. Some people would call it the deep state, but it's really in your face. So I wouldn't even call it the deep state anymore. But what you were saying is that. It sounds like to me that government has grown to such a size that it's starting not to act in the best interest of of its citizens, but it's really starting to act in the best interest of itself to ensure its own survival and the, you know, covering the news. And what I've noticed, right, is they're taking or they're moving chess pieces to really maintain this monopoly, th this reserve currency status, right? And the ability that that gives the U.S. government through weaponizing the dollar and, you know, placing sanctions that don't really do their intended, you know, purpose or whatever. But to what length do you think 
that this machine, because that's what it is, to what length will they go to? Because I think in the last two years, whatever your political ideology is, they have taken off the mask. They don't even care. Uh, before, I would say five years ago, you would say deep state and someone would say, go watch Alex Jones. You're a conspiracy theorist. Now you say deep state and you're like, okay, uh, I might still not be 100% convinced, but there has been a lot of things over the last couple of years that makes you question what the hell is going on. And that what that made that what that made made me realize as a Bitcoiner is that that's really what you're up against. You're up against that machine. And the fact is, is that the Fed based in D.C., that is. That is what is paying for all of their salaries. That is what yeah. ensures that they're OK. And for Bitcoin to win the way that we want it to win, it's exactly what you said, Lawrence. This is for all the marbles. This is this is to get the, the tip oh, at the yeah. top. So yeah. what will they go through? What what do you think? And and well, and, you know, we gotta, look, they'll they'll change the rules. They'll lie. They'll cheat. They'll steal. I mean, they've, you know, I mean, it's, um, I mean, hell, they killed a president. Um, they they probably threatened a lot of the other presidents. Um, Who's they? Who's they? Um, people who are in power. The people who are behind the scenes. You know, pushing the buttons. Um, you know, and it's it's a large group of, of it's it's a large loosely held group of insiders, but the thing that kind of holds them all together is that they're all wealthy and they're all corrupt, and so um, you know I think we can assume that they're going to do a lot of bad shit. The good news is, you know, the internet, um, you know, it's 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 made Joe Rogan more powerful than you know network news. Mm -hmm. You know, it's I mean we're all you know your generation. I mean. Look, I mean, you know, I told my father I was absolutely convinced it was before he passed that, that you know, the CIA killed Kennedy because I'd read everything there is to read on it. And any any decent halfway decent analyst could have come to this, that conclusion. It's so fucking obvious. And my dad just he couldn't bear it. He, he served in the military. He couldn't bear to think of the possibility that we had people in our government who were so evil they'd murder a president. Right. But I think your generation pretty much widely accepts that that's what happened, you know, and, and most of the rest of the world accepts it. I mean, you know, what? It's a great story. Somebody was trying to, at one point in one of the conferences, somebody was trying to talk to Putin about poisoning guys in England. And, and he kind of he kind of laughed and he turned over and he said, yeah, like like what happened in Dallas in November of 63 wasn't bad. And what the fuck are you talking about? I mean, look, you know, and as you say, Nico, I mean, this has been going on for a long time. I mean, if you read if you read American history, I mean, this isn't like. You know, I mean, this battle has been fought from the early days. I mean, you had Hamilton and Jefferson going at it. And, you know, who's going to have the power? I mean, and, and you know, America is a big, powerful country. I mean, we, we stood at the top of the world after World War II. And uh, is, isn't it amazing how quickly we fucked it up, you know? And <laughs> well, so that's, a, that's, that's kind of an interesting point. And, like, I, I kind of align with, I think, like, Zion has, like, an interesting angle on this where he kind of flips the script on, like, whether we look at, like, you know, we could kind of look at the last hundred years as, like, the American century and this kind of, like, like era of, like, American dominance. But Zion actually makes the argument that it's better characterized as American sacrifice, and the deals that we made and the industrial deals with China and the U.S. dollar as reserve currency, like 
all disadvantaged to like the US. Like these were all things that like were at the US's detriment. We we essentially sacrificed our economy in exchange for providing like global policing or like global mm -hmm. security, which mm -hmm. like you can criticize all you want, but it did create like a, a level of stability, right? There was like a level of like Japan could ship freight around the world and like no sure. one's going to mess with that freight, right? Like for all the murders and coups and you know, whatever, I'm not, I'm not justifying that. But, um, but I, so I, so I think that's interesting. I think like, I, I thought, um, I was the first time I'd heard someone put it quite like that. And like, you know, I, there's a lot that gets discussed in these circles, I'm sure of like the detriments to being the reserve currency and the trade deficits and like China's buying all our assets with dollars that we ship them in, in the trade surplus. Like, but, um, this notion of like, I think, uh, uh, just like American sacrifice of these, like, deals that like just and and then you look at you look at the current state of the country and you look at like just you know the economic malaise and the inequality and just like you know the the, the huge stratification of like wealth and it's like yeah like we we hollowed out the middle of the country we hollowed Absolutely. out the industrial yeah. base and yeah. like well, that, that was and, the american sacrifice yeah well and and, and that occurred i mean it's what you got to remember is that everybody just acts in their own best interest right i mean american American corporations didn't have to go along with that, but they did because, you know, they were all, you know, they all had stock options and the CEOs all had stock options and they realized that they could build shit overseas for a fraction of what it cost to build it here. And so they yeah. would ship the factories overseas and employ all those people. The profits would go up. The stock options would go up. They'd be Jeff Immelt building a $16 million house on Nantucket because he made $600 million on his GE stock options. And yet GE is a, is a hulk of the former company that it used to be. I mean, you know, these, these people, I mean, everybody did what was in their self-interest, but it wasn't in the overall interest of the country. Well, mean, Ross, Ross Perot talked about this. It, it's, it, it, it's fascinating because that resulted really in the rise of populism that you've seen over, you know, the last really since 2016, 2017, and seeing the establishment react to it, um, I think really opened a lot of eyes. It opened my eyes um, to it initially. But do you think that, do you, and let's kind of pull this back to Bitcoin, pass it on to you, Stephen. Do you think Bitcoin fixes this? Do you think that's just the result of the US being the global, uh, the, the world reserve currency? Does Bitcoin fix this? Does Bitcoin bring America back to its former glory? Or are you kind of from the thought of China rising? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very pro America and, and optimistic uh, for, for America. And I, like, you know, I believe, and I'll, I'll answer the Bitcoin question, but um, I believe, you know, I, I don't look at the world and like, I don't see China as a substitute for America, right? Like there are like really strong cultural differences. And like one example of like, American culture is cool, man. Like people want to be American. Does anybody want to be Han Chinese? Like, no, not really. And, and they don't want you to be right. Only like, you know, I've, I have a buddy that just stayed with me. That's lived in China for the last three to five years. And like their view is like, actually you can't be Chinese. Only we can be Chinese. It's like, it's not a, you know, whatever, like, but you can't really adopt our culture because you're not Chinese. Like you can't do it. 
And that's the view. There's a fundamentally like non-imperialistic cultural streak to China that I think really flies under the radar. Like they do not want to proselytize their culture. And like culture is a huge part of being the global superpower, right? And so like when I look at like the role of America in the coming century, right? Like there's just what, is Europe going to assume the position that America occupies? Like, no, like, you know, there's nobody, there's not a suitable like hegemon waiting in the wings. Uh, so first of all, I, I'm optimistic America. I think we need to get our act together, but like, I don't, I don't like reliably see, I think China could be a really hard economic power. I think they could have a lot of like hard power and economic power, but uh, it's more than that, right? And there's like a soft power element too. But anyway, so what I think Bitcoin does, uh, what I think Bitcoin does, and I think like the most substantial and like legitimate argument for why Bitcoin can fix things in society is this question of capital misallocation, which I think is like pervasive and profound, right? Like, and it's essentially just that when money is so cheap and you basically get paid to borrow money, like in the beginning of the article, you talked about like who isn't going to borrow money for to buy a house at 3% when inflation's high and the house is going to go up. Like you take that trade all day because the money is so cheap because it's so inexpensive, like it incentivize and, and it's inflating too. So you're losing value on it. And so it forces and incentivizes everybody to just go rush their capital into investments. The problem is maybe those aren't good investments, right? Like maybe those aren't the right investments. Maybe that's not where the market would allocate capital if uh, capital was harder to come by and was, was, was if money was more expensive. And, um, and I think that's like a profound problem we're facing because I like to view the economy like the economic machine is like it's like a, it's like a computer, right? It processes information and prices the data. And so it's able to collect all the intelligence from all the economic actors and all the humans all over the world and all in the system. And it, and it transmits that information in the form of price. And so when you distort that and you distort that by making the money super cheap, by funding non-profitable companies, by forcing everyone to allocate their capital, even if they don't want to invest it, you can't save anymore. It just distorts the system, right? And it funds, it funds non-viable enterprises. And I think one of the biggest things that Bitcoin does is it reigns that in. And under a Bitcoin system, it is costlier to invest. And that's a good thing because we need to be more selective with where we put our resources because the, the crux of it is the Keynesians think, they think that because money is fungible, like a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. And if you fund WeWork to the tune of $8 billion, well, that money is going to pay people's salary and circulate through the system and it doesn't matter. But what they miss is that while money may be fungible, People's time is not. If we fund WeWork with $8 billion and WeWork hires 10 of the smartest people in the world to work on WeWork, they're not working on building rockets. They're not working on better fertilizer. They're not working on these other things. And so that's a real loss of society's real resources. And I think, I think very legitimately under, under a Bitcoin world or under a world where like we don't have this fiat, like, you know, we yeah. don't fund like 
companies to hire our best talent to do bullshit, right? Like they yeah, go work I, on productive things. Steven's making a very good point that I've made in the past and completely agree with, which is, you know, without having an accurate cost of capital, capitalism doesn't work because you spend money on bullshit stuff like meme stocks and shit coins. Yeah. And, you know, if, if, if capital is correctly priced, it leads people to put money where it's going to get its best return, which is what society needs, which is what increases living standards for all of us. And so the reason our living standards have not gone up and the reason that your generation is the first generation that perhaps won't be as well off as your parents or won't see as much you know, improvement in your wealth and your gains as your parents is because the system is so hopelessly broken that we're burning the furniture you know, to, to, to heat the house. And we should be out there building nuclear plants to figure out how to make energy more cheaply. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's and you just can't do that when capital's free. Yeah. You know, capital has to be priced accurately, and it's not. And the reason for that is that fiat has just become, you know, another chip that they play with in their game to stay in power. And therefore, you know, it's it's broken. So, you know, it's funny because I, you know, in part. I want to see things get you know better, but in part I'm kind of rooting for their system to fail so that they can get really better because you know this this halfway better just zombification where we keep walking along in the fiat world. I'm like, you know, there's a part of me that wants Stephanie Kelton to win and to dominate the discussion and to get everybody in Washington to go full MMT because that will cause the collapse that we need to get reset on a sound system. And we really need that reset. You know, Stephen makes an excellent point about, you know, money has to be appropriately priced or else, you know, we do not get the best economic outcome. It, the fact that money is not appropriately priced costs all of us in terms yeah. of our standard of living. Yeah, the we, machine would all have a, we would all have a much higher standard of living if yeah. money had been properly priced. Yeah. It breaks the machine. And like, yeah. uh, like, I can't hammer this point enough, but like the 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 process by which markets work is like a modern miracle like it is a miracle the way right. that markets synthesize like we could never do it and that, that i mean that was the lesson of communism is like central planning can't work because the the kind of it's like this emergent property like this thing emerges out of all of these micro interactions right. that is so much smarter and more intelligent and more capable than any human or any group of humans. And yeah. like, but it's, it's, it's like a computer or it's, it's like a mentat. It's like this thing that you need to feed the right information mm -hmm. into. And if it you give signals. it the wrong information, it gives you the wrong outcome. Exactly. And like, we're giving it the wrong information. That's exactly right. So, and I, I think you brought up a fascinating point, Stephen, and I'll bounce it back to you, right? Because I see it the same exact way, right? The, the, the problem with central planning, oh, my camera went off, I'm switching it, don't worry. The problem with central planning, right, is that it's a group of intellectual elite that think they're the intellectual elite, and they have all these credentials, and they went to the right universities, and they have the hubris to think they know what's best for millions upon millions upon millions of people making their own decisions with yep. their wallets. And then that sends signals to the entrepreneurs to, hey, it, what produce this. We want more of this, right? So, right. yeah, it, it's, it's absolutely insane. And I got to the same conclusion, right? 
is Bitcoin the end of that mentality? And and the sovereign individual, the book, he makes the argument that through the transition into the information age, what we're going to see, which is something that we can't even imagine, the death of politics as we know it today, and the death of the importance of politics as we say as we see it as we see it today. But the other side of me is like. There's a lot of people that have a lot to lose because there's a lot of politicians that say the right buzzwords, right? Whether it's tax the rich, even though we know, for example, the rich pay the vast majority of the income tax in this country, but that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound good. That's not very buzzy. That's not very catchy, right? So there's a lot of people that, that stand a lot to lose from the death of politics. Are, do you believe with the theory? Do you believe in the theory from the sovereign individual, Stephen? Are we seeing is this is Bitcoin and the internet and the abilities that the internet gives you, whether that's to communicate with anyone around the world, to post a message and that message to be seen by millions of people, and money, the the ability to send money and to transport money very easily without fear of confiscation or debasement, is this the end? of politics that we saw in the 21st century that resulted in the deaths of tens of millions of people is bitcoin the end to that system do you see a, yeah. do you, or how your ceo how Corey clipson says it the bright orange future yeah <laughs> yeah so that's a really interesting question and so I think that it's it's definitely it is a fundamental alteration and and I'll get like the areas where that really is the case but you know as long as there's human beings human beings are going to organize so if we're going to define politics as like groups of people well you're not going to get rid of groups of people like there will always be you know kind of groups and organizations so I, I don't think like politics itself but I think what does change is there is a disintermediation of control of money and control of information. And so, you know, we know a lot about money. We're in the Bitcoin world. There's this great book called The Revolt of the Public, which deals with information. And like prior to the Internet, like states controlled, like it was full control over information. You had nowhere to get information. So the Internet comes out. And the author gives us a great example of like suddenly there's this like media story. They're trying to say that like, George W. Bush, that he like faked his draft paperwork or something. And like they put up this document on like CNN or something. And some random anonymous person on the internet like figures out that the typeface that they used in the document didn't exist during the time that the document was produced. And you have this first instance of like a random person um, refuting an institutional media like power structure. And it, it just marks like this decline of the ability of the state to uh, control the flows of information. So I think the internet and I think, I think Bitcoin and I think a neutral, neutral reserve asset and neutral money, I think it separates those two classic functions of the state, information and money, and it takes those away. And I think that alters politics. I think that fundamentally alters like what are the mechanisms here? But, you know, I, I'm, I'm more skeptical that like, you know, like, all the countries just like disappear and mm -hmm. like, you know, we sing Kumbaya and like organize <laughs> the little like pods of dolphins. Like, you know, I, 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 I think, I think groups and tribes and nations are very Lindy, right? It's a very old concept. Um, but I think, but I think it does fundamentally alter like the political fabric.
Yeah, and I and I also think, and I've made the case, and we're running out of time, gentlemen. So I'll I'll let uh, Lawrence say his bit and what he thinks about this. I've always said that what really Bitcoin and the internet has done is it, it shifted the balance of power from the state back kind of to the individual. Right now, the individual has a fighting chance where before he had absolutely no chance. Right, your country becomes tyrannical. You could memorize twelve words. You can cross a border and you're going to go where you're treated best, right? And the, also the internet has facilitated mass communications, which has thrown a wrench at their ability to control the narrative like they did in the past. I saw someone on Twitter say something fascinating. And what he said is that in 2003, when the U.S. wanted to invade Iraq, if social media existed, that wouldn't be possible, right? The New York Times all those media institutions, they had a complete monopoly on information. The New York Times convinced everybody that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction when that was never true, right? What happened if social media was around? At least there would be a pushback on that narrative where before there was none. So Lawrence, what are your thoughts on this conversation? I, I agree with that. I mean, it, to me, the internet, I mean, so if you look at what the printing press did to you know the Catholic Church, um, you know, the Internet's doing to the government narrative today. And uh, and then Bitcoin just takes it the next step into, you know, full non-state money that, you know, is easy to move around, etc. It's, you know, it's it's gold that is not yet manipulated. Hopefully it won't ever be seriously manipulated. And so, yeah, I, I think the Internet is probably, you know, the most important development, you know, of the last hundred years. And I think probably Bitcoin is right behind it. Uh, in terms of, you know, changing our world. Um, and as a result of that, you know, people can self-educate and get a better education, better, more information, mm -hmm. faster via the internet. Um, and then they can store their money in something that's sound, again, via the internet and a digital medium. Um, I think those two things are going to completely upset the existing power structure, the existing set centralized power structure. <laughs> and, that, and yeah. you know, not, not a moment too soon, right? I mean... We're dying under this thing. I mean, it's it's just horrible. It, know, it's you know, it's so, terrible. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, it is. It's terrible. But but you know, it's um. I mean, in my way, you know, I, I kind of it's almost divine. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it really is. I mean, it's like you know, God swooped in here to help us out a little bit, gave us these two in, you know inventions, and um and you know the people who are running the old system. I mean, as you might imagine, they got fat, lazy, corrupt, and uh, you know, if, had they had they been better stewards of the power they had, uh, they wouldn't be so threatened. But they weren't, and so they are. You know. Yep. Good times created weak men, and now my generation, uh, we are treating this like it's Bitcoin or slavery, specifically with these central bank digital currencies that are over the horizon, and we're really treat we're really treating it that way. Uh, it's we oh, take absolutely. it very seriously. Look, I, I don't want—I don't want to live in a world where Bitcoin doesn't win. I mean, and I—I I mean, it's—it is life or death for for humanity, in my opinion. And it's going to win. I mean, it's yeah. that's the thing that's so great about it is that you know, for all that we get frustrated that it's not happening more quickly, it's still happening pretty damn quickly, and and it, it really is happening. And I don't—I don't see a stopper. I mean, they're going to try all kinds of shit, no doubt. I mean, I—I got to tell you, these people, you know, they're evil, and they've tried. And they, they outlawed short selling in 2008. I mean, you name it. Then look what they just did to the guys who were short nickel, you know, or I mean, uh, long nickel. And they 
They broke all those contracts. I mean, they'll, they'll change the rules. They'll break the rules. They'll arrest people. I mean, look at what they did to Snowden. Look at what they're doing to, um, you know, Assange, et cetera. I mean, these are evil fucking people, period. But having said that, we got them outnumbered. I mean, I love the meme where, you know, they're standing out on the plank and we're all standing on the other end of it. You know, they need us. I mean, we got them badly outnumbered. And so, so you know, I, I wouldn't want to be them. I mean, they, they have a, they're playing a losing hand. They are, and I think they know it too, um, right. which is well, that's why. Right. That's why you see them getting more. De- that's why you see it, see them getting more desperate. Some of the stuff they're doing. I mean, this going after this tornado guy. I mean, this is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, my view is fuck them. I mean, you know, <laughs> I got, I, I seriously, I got my twelve words. You know, come torture them out of me. You know, I mean, I, I put a thread out about this. I mean, you know, people say, you know, um, I'm not going to use my Bitcoin because they're, they're going to tax it. What I use Mun, I use Mun Wallet all the time, and. You know, what are they going to trick track me down and try and tax me on the cup of coffee I bought? And what, what was the basis of that coin that I used to buy the coffee? Fuck that shit. I mean, you know, we, we got to overwhelm these people and we will. You know, well, we that's will. why they're hiring an army of 87,000. Yeah. yeah, but you know what? We're going to drive those assholes nuts too. Oh, I mean, yeah, man. come on at me. You know, I got yeah. all the information, right? I mean, I, I just don't care. Oh, by the way, why are those guys, why do those guys need to be, you know, armed and prepared? For deadly force i mean right i mean <laughs> because it's extortion that's that's well, what it, what is really what well, it that's is right and also because they recognize that at some point at some point you know some large segment of this population is going to say you know we've had enough and the mm-hmm. shooting's going to start yeah so you know i'm not looking forward to that but i'm just suggesting that there's a point at which you know the second amendment's actually going to become relevant yeah so yeah, I, I, as an immigrant, right, and I'll pass it on to you, Stephen. Um, I value the First and Second Amendment the most because, and usually when a, a country slips to totalitarianism, you know, those are the first things to go, right? Um, they, they, you know, they start censoring people for political speech, and of course, they take everyone's guns, right? And the founding fathers were genius enough to put those at the very top and there's certain political institutions in this country that absolutely it drives them up the wall that they can't do that right um so steven what are your thoughts then we'll wrap up yeah um (laughs) it's funny what i was gonna say is i actually just got a message that um in China, uh, Sichuan has ordered all the factories to shut down for six days due to a power shortage. Um, and I think this is going to be like, you know, this notion of energy, right? I, I talk about this a lot. I think it's so critical, right? Like the, what the next couple decades are going to look like is going to be so heavily influenced by what relationship we have with energy and with power production and whether we go down this road of like energy austerity where we need to use less energy, which I think is wrong. Like whether you're just like your only goal is economic growth or your only goal is like climate stuff, right? Either way, like it's the wrong approach. Like either way, like the future of, uh, you know, the future of civilization is is going to be like built on top of us becoming better masters of energy. Like we need to become more efficient, more reliable. We need new forms of energy. You mentioned nuclear. I, I am a huge nuclear proponent. I think it's the best of both worlds and we have enough uranium to go for 350,000 years. Um, and so uh, what, I, what I love about Bitcoin is not only does Bitcoin, um, you know, all, all the monetary 
elements that we talked about, but Bitcoin uses energy and Bitcoin creates this fundamental financial incentive for better energy because the bottom line is whoever has the cheapest power makes the most money mining Bitcoin. And so it incentivizes and directs capital to the most efficient producers of energy. It's a huge free market incentive for better energy innovation. And I don't care what your priorities are, if you care at all about human civilization, you want us to get better at energy, whether that's for the climate and mitigating environmental impacts, or that's for economic growth and human prosperity. And so I love that not only does Bitcoin plug into this monetary question, but it also plugs into this critical energy question. Uh, and you know, it, it, that's amazing. Like, that's phenomenal. We need that real world connection because that's the other thing, right? Like, I think I think a lot of the, the issues and the tension and like the, the challenges we're facing in the country, right? Like, um, it has to do with this like disconnect from the real world. Like, uh, I think, uh, I think, what is it? What is Teal's thing? It's like, like atoms, not bits, right? Like Peter Teal does this argument that like, we need to focus on like real world engineering, and what I love about Bitcoin is even though it's a digital technology, I think it does have this very tangible connection to the real world of, of matter and atoms and electrons and atoms. I already said that. Um, but it has this very real connection. And um, I think that's, that's really like vital. I think that brings a lot of vitality to it. I think it makes it that like not only can we develop this monetary system and this digital technology that has all the benefits of digital but it also it also forces us to uh, promote energy engineering and research and innovation. And that's one of my favorite things about Bitcoin. And it's one reason I'm so bullish proof of work. And like the, the proof of stake proponents will be like, oh, like proof of stake doesn't use energy. It doesn't use energy. I'm like, that's a bad thing. Like not only from a security level, not only from like a protocol, like blah, 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 like that's been discussed. But actually, I think using energy is a good thing. And I think we should use more energy. And I think we should have incentives to produce better energy. Because if the future is energy austerity and the human human just trying to use less and less energy, that gets really bad really quickly. And 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 I think the thing that people don't understand that like advocate for that is even if you can convince like a generation of people to do it. What about the next generation? And what about the one after that? Eventually, someone's just going to revolt. Like, you know, it's, they're just going to be like, life sucks. Like, we want to use energy. We're a generation removed from the generation that agreed to not use energy. Like, screw you guys. Um, it just it hasn't like the game theory doesn't work out. It doesn't have a chance of playing out. And so, you know, it's like Bitcoin presents this like. Um, like this optimistic view of the future. It's this like really critical optimism for, for humanity. And I, uh, we need that optimism. Like, like that's the only way to run a civilized, like you can't really have like a, a, a like a strong pessimistic civilization. It just, it just doesn't work. Right. Like we need yep. a positive vision for the future. And I think Bitcoin helps us get that. Absolutely. The nihilism needs to end. You're spot on about the energy. There's a direct correlation between human prosperity and energy yeah. usage. Um, yeah. So I am bullish on humans using more energy. Less energy means death, sickness, despair, and poverty. And I think that we really have to work hard to shake people up and wake them up to that fact. Anyways, gentlemen, I really had a lot of fun. That was a, that was, that was a great, great podcast for me. This is one of the longest I've done. Usually they're between an hour 15, hour 30. 
So I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for joining me. Steven, where can people find you? What are you working on nowadays? Yeah, yeah. Just look me up, Steven Lupka on Twitter, at Zambala Hoddle, but easier time searching my name. Um, and I'm running, I run Swan Private for Swan. So we are working on creating a million more Bitcoiners in the US. I specifically run the high net worth team. If you know anybody that's looking to do a larger Bitcoin purchase, wants handholding, wants a direct point of contact. We love working with people's parents. We love working with people that just, they need that human, that human element. So we're building Swan Private. We're building Swan Bitcoin and, you know, look me up on Twitter. Awesome. Yep. I send, I send everybody to swan and i've sent sort i've sent a handful of people to swan private awesome. what i've heard so far is amazing i'm not just saying that because i've actually experienced it um and i've actually gotten a lot of people off coinbase because i think you guys are doing a great job That's anyways awesome. lawrence where could people find you what are you working on nowadays well i run a fund that invests in uh, sound money stuff uh, gold silver gold silver miners and bitcoin bitcoin infrastructure companies like caitlin's um, so, uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Lawrence Lepard and I make a lot of noise there. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I have a website, ema2.com, which has a lot of white papers and quarterly reports and economic stuff. So, uh, if you want to read more of what we're thinking, you can go to our website and, uh, and there's a lot of free stuff there to you know, get a hold of. So, and I'm, I'm available for questions and all that sort of stuff. Awesome. Just so everybody knows, I have both their Twitters down in the video description, so you can go check them out. Gentlemen, I'm going to put you backstage for a second. I'm going to wrap up the show. It should be two minutes. Okay. All right, guys, that was the second episode of the interview series. I want to give a shout out to all our sponsors. First, SwanBitcoin.com. SwanBitcoin is the best place to buy Bitcoin, whether it's a million dollars, $10 million dollars. Definitely want to go check out swanbitcoin.com. It's by plebs for plebs. It is the number one place I recommend recommend people to buy Bitcoin on. They incentivize self-custody and they also incentivize dollar cost averaging. Also, CypherSafe, don't store your seed on paper. Store your seed on steel. This is generational wealth. After all, no better place to do it than the CypherSafe. Get yourself a Cypher wheel or a Cypher grid. Run your own node. If you're listening to Simply Bitcoin, you should be running your own Bitcoin node. And one of the best Bitcoin nodes on the market right now is the Noddle. Run your own version of Bitcoin Core, the Lightning Network, Whirlpool, and Dojo, all from the comfort of your own home. Get yourself a Noddle. Also, represent LTD. I'm wearing the hoodie right now. Some of the best, comfiest clothing ever. He's making Bitcoin merch. He's making Simply Bitcoin merch. It's comfy. It's stylish. Also, you can take advantage of the promo code down below to get 10% off representltd.com. Also, Citadel 21. It's the best Bitcoin cultural zine. Pure pleb signal. Last but not least, Crypto Cloaks, the best 3D printed Bitcoin merch in the game. Get yourself the famous 3D printed Bitcoin grenade toy. That's right. It comes in gold. Definitely want to go check out Crypto Cloaks. Guys, we love you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the second episode of the Simply Bitcoin interview series. We're going to do a whole lot more. We're going to try to get the most interesting people in the Bitcoin spaces from plebs to CEOs to all of, the, all of them. All of them. We're going to try to do it. Anyways, we will see you guys tomorrow in the Simply Bitcoin regular episode, regular show. See you guys later.